We have huge amount of cash over liquidity in the private sector, huge amount, double digit trillions. But they are not feasible to finance clean air. In order to jumpstart the economy after COVID-19 and make real transformation feasible, Club of Rome member Dr. Mariana Bosazan consults with some of the brightest world leaders to capture their ideas. Today, Mariana interviews Professor Dr. Dr. Stefan Brunhuber. He's a psychiatrist with a PhD in finance and economics, an endowed professor for sustainability research, member of the International Club of Rome and the World Academy of Arts and Sciences, as well as a political counselor to the EU Commission, the WHO, and the UN. This episode is also available as a video on YouTube. The purpose of this high-level consultation is to take a transdisciplinary approach toward changing finance and financing change. Um, the initiative of uh, the Club of Rome, and to capture the ideas of some of the brightest minds in the world to do that we need to do in order to implement the planetary emergency plan that the Club of Rome has put out last year. So in 2008, the world created the so-called quantitative easing program in order to address the financial crisis, which basically meant we printed money and put it into an already bankrupt system. And we all know that this trickle-down system didn't work. The COVID-19 crisis is basically exacerbating the problems that we should have recognized back then, but we did not address. And now we're finding ourselves in the same situation. So from your perspective, how can we jumpstart the economy following this crisis or during it, depending on how, it, uh, how long it will last, mm -hmm. and really transform existing systems, starting with the financial economics, but also work, education, and so on? What are your ideas along those lines? First of all, thank you very much for inviting me to this exciting hub and exciting idea um, I'm very, very happy and um, that we are now entering a phase where the financial system in general becomes more relevant in the overall sustainability debate. Over the last 30, 40 years, we're addressing technology, resource efficiency, governance, and other aspects which are extremely relevant, but we are now realizing that there is a, there is a missing gap, and the missing gap is the money system is the financial system. It basically oversteers everything we're doing at the moment on a local level, on a global level, north and south, east and west. So if we take this current crisis as a symptom, as a trigger, we can understand that the world community is facing ongoing so-called asymmetric shocks. An asymmetric shock is something that hits you even though you did everything right, right? You think you did everything right, but it's going to hit you. And facing asymmetric shocks is one of the characteristics of the Anthropocene, right? We're living within planetary boundaries are completely interconnected online, full size, 724. And suddenly there is a viral pandemic. Everybody did his right thing, but suddenly it's going to hit us. And this is causing the economy, the society, the civil society, and also the financial system putting on the stress. And we have to look very closely 
how we're dealing with asymmetric trucks. And the pandemia we're facing right now is just one example of asymmetric trucks. It's not the asymmetric truck. It just shows us the overall system is responding through asymmetric trucks on our way of life, on our way, how we do economics, how we do finance in a very general way. So I consider this current situation as a so-called planetary momentum. You know, psychologically, it's never happened for centuries, maybe never in human lifetime, that we have 7.5 billion people in a mental preparedness state for change in a non-war area. This never happened before. So look, we have 7.5 billion people ready to change, and we don't know where, in which direction to change, but they're ready. we have a preparedness to change. We know from clinical psychology that preparedness to change is one of the key components for real change. You know, pure information doesn't change human behaviors, but the so-called mental preparedness for change, the preparedness for behavioral change, is one of the preconditions clinical psychologists have pointed out, for example, to change addictive behavior or psychotic behavior, depressive behavior. Well documented. So. This is where we are right now, not only on an individual level, but also on a collective level. We are ready for change. But suddenly we realize we are affected by asymmetric trucks and we can only change on individual level, but the system itself is kind of, kind of opposing us doing the right thing, even if we knew what we had to do, right? So then it comes to the financial system itself. And you're referring to the 2008 crisis where the conventional system basically printed additional money by the trillions in order to feed the economy um, to stabilize itself, right? But the money, the liquidity basically went into the API as a price index and to the banking sector. It didn't go where it's supposed to go in order to stabilize the system. Okay, so we have to look very closely not to do the same mistake again and again and again. First, I'm getting back to that. The second thing I find extremely relevant from a system and complex system perspective is we have now since about five to seven years uh, empirical evidence and robust data that in order to have a system in a in a, in a sustainable way, we need a balance between two variables. And the variables are efficiency on one side, which basically describes the throughput per time, and resilience or anti-fragility on the other side. If you look at the discussion about the last 30 years from 1992 onwards with the Washington Consensus, we've been basically following the efficiency side. We made the system extremely efficient, privatizing, deregulating, liberalization of the financial sector, of the economy, et cetera. Very helpful. But it shows we've overstretched this part of the variable. We're now facing value chains which are extremely efficient, but they're extremely brittle. Okay? They break within days. Whole industry break down within days. So what we have to look at here is that we shift back to an economy and to a financial sector which finds a very wise balance 
between the amount of efficiency in place and the amount of resilient or anti-fragility in place. So when we're talking about anti-fragility or resilience in place on an economic and financial perspective, it basically means we might have to reconsider to decouple global value chains because it's just too expensive to produce paracetamol or antibiotics in China. It's just too expensive. Okay, so we might have to come up with the plan to produce the stuff in Europe, for example. So we start re-regionalizing our economy, right? Another sector is we probably have to look in multi-channel, multi-supply channels, not only just in time production, but multi-channels balancing out each other, right? This will make the prices a little bit higher, more costly, yes, less efficient, yes, but more resilient in face of future asymmetric shocks ahead, right? So these are the two aspects we can discuss more in details. First, how reframing the current monetary design with regard to quantitative easing and the way it's been done. And second, the link between efficiency and resilience, okay? These are the two aspects I would like to discuss more in details. <clears throat> Let's look at the first one again, because this is vital. We are operating since 300 years on a monetary monoculture, okay? A monetary monoculture means we have one single design of the monetary system in place that basically allows us to uh, issue money and to produce a value chain of goods and services trickle down, as you mentioned, and then basically at the end of the pipeline, through fees, through charity, through philanthropy, and or through taxation, financing global goods or common goods, or in the current situation, financing SDGs, right? And this sequential, linear way of doing it is extremely efficient. That's true. But it is extremely volatile and extremely brittle, okay? And we are experiencing now again that we risk to make the same mistake again by generating additional liquidity through a monoculture, enabling us to finance our future. And I can predict if my second quote is right, that we have to balance between efficiency and resilience, the current monetary tools will never work. They will be just far too expensive for the entire political system to stabilize open societies and democracies and to stabilize our wealth in the North and in the South by using these instruments, right? So one of the proposals we are discussing at the hub and at the World Academy is, let's look at the design of the monetary system itself. Let's look how it's been designed, it's been made up by honoring what had been done so far by appreciating the success, but by criticizing, integrating, transcending the given to a larger whole. And if you take this quote to the monetary system, we have to seriously consider discussing something which is called in the monetary field, the monetary ecosystem, right? We have to seriously consider a new role of the monetary regulators, by an extended mandate. We have to seriously consider different monetary channels 
And we thirdly have to seriously consider new technology, basically blockchain technology, enabling to finance our SDGs. And if we take this as a common ground, <clears throat> we could say, if we want to fly to Mars, if we want to invest in, uh, invent a new AI algorithm, we still need venture capital in the conventional system. We still need entrepreneur private spirit to make that happen. But if we consider that asymmetric shocks in the future are challenging us, especially if it comes to global common goods like fresh air, accessing healthcare, accessing a kindergarten, global warming, cleaning up the ocean, biodiversity, name it. All the 17 SDGs are right there. We have the entire scientific evidence on what has to be done. We don't have to discuss that anymore. We have the map out there. We can discuss priorities. We can discuss um, first year, second year goals, but we have the entire evidence there. Goals, sub goals, targets. What's missing is the financial system that allows us to finance them, right? And the best way, we were discussing this at WAS since five years and also within the Club of Rome Hub is, why not introducing a parallel system? Why not introducing a parallel system that allows us, supported by blockchain technology, right? Orchestered, by regulators and monitored by the UN and or by developing banks like the IPE to directly target and send the liquidity where it's supposed to go and finance directly healthcare, accessing uh, education, cleaning up oceans, etc., etc. Um, blockchain technology with the smart contracts, especially third and fourth generation blockchain, can enable us a corruption-free monetary channel to ensure that the money is going where it's supposed to go. If you take that on a meta level, we basically end up shifting our mindset from a Western thinking to a more Eastern thinking from a Western Aristotelic, Thomistic, Kantian thinking of linear thinking, of sequential thinking towards a more complex, complementary thinking. And this other thinking I would like, or we should, we could call the Tao thinking, the Tao of finance. And the Tao of finance is exactly about these two systems. And I've been in contact with corporates now leading hidden global champions. I've pre presenting this idea since two or three months. And they're telling me we can enable that technologically in less than a year on a country level. So it's not a technological problem. We have the technology right out there, okay? What's missing is the mindset to understand we gotta think dual, parallel, complementary, complex, Linear solutions for complex asymmetric trucks will never ever work by definition of an asymmetric truck. And my, my um, impression is it will be not a moral or ethical imperative 
It will be a cost imperative that will lead us to this or a very similar mechanism to this, what we're just describing, because the costs for our Western democracies and the costs for our Western economic models will be simply too high to cope with if you do not consider different thinking and different finance in order to allow a more resilient economy altogether. This is a short answer to your first question. Thank you very much, very comprehensive. And that's exactly the point. What is the first, second, and the third step, respectively, short-term uh, and uh, medium and long-term? We do have influence. We do participate in high-level consultations with the European Union, which is a wonderful opportunity for us to really bring this forward thinking into these people's minds who can actually make it happen. What would be the recommendation from your perspective? In which ways shall we implement? Because I believe that the willingness is there. Um, the understanding that we, for the problem is the, uh, are there. The question is, how do we go about implementing it? So yeah. let's say you would have a meeting with uh, uh, von der Leyen, the EU commissioner, or uh, Timmermans, and so on. What would you tell them? In, what are the, the concrete steps? What is required from the policy perspective? Okay. Um, yes, I'm personally favoring a top-down approach. I know that most activists are more favoring a bottom-up approach or going to, on the street and make demonstrations. I'm personally, that's a personal personal taste, kind of, I'm more into a top-down approach. And uh, if I had an invitation to von der Leyen and Timmersman, I would say, meeting only makes sense if at least the following agencies are also at the table, okay? I'm not depreciating you, but I want. The head of IPE, Mr. Hoyer, uh, head of Central Bank, and the leading financial ministers at the table, meaning I need, 10 to 15 people on the table in finance, regulatory, and political execution. And then I need 40 minutes to explain that mechanism. Okay, this is, this is what's required. And especially by speaking with experts in the regulator field, like BaFin, you know, or... Um, at Bundesaufsichtsbehörde. Yeah. Uh, or with... Um, with um, regulators at the central bank. They're extremely smart people, super smart. I mean, the last 20 years, there was a positive selection towards the financial sector. You know, former times they went into engineering and medicine and whatever, but the last 20 years, they all went into finance, more or less, and investment, because the smartest brains saw there the, the largest opportunity to go. Okay. Make money. You know, make money or to understand money and the ECB has gathered the brightest brains in finance and economics, right? What they have to understand is not the technicalities. They get that within 10 minutes. Really, I've been doing this since years. They're super smart. What they need is a mind shift to understand that they're all, they're, their own frame is limited to understand asymmetric shocks. 
And what's required here in one sentence, we can discuss it for hours, in one sentence, an extended monetary mandate beyond unemployment and CPI, consumer price index, towards sustainability. Monetary regulators need a political man, and this is also, also the feedback I'm getting when I speak to regulators. I say, okay, you're right. What you're discussing at the hub and what you're discussing at was is just brilliant. You're just right. You're technically right. We can do that in months. Don't worry. But, Steve, we're not allowed to do that. We don't have the mandate. That's exactly the point. How do we get, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you. And that's because I've been in this field for 30 years myself <laughs> as an investor and company builder. So how do we get the political mandate? How do we start at the top? Because these people are not bad people. No, they want no. to have an impact. They see the problems. They're intelligent, as you said, but their hands are bound. They yes. get measured in a way Absolutely. that is counterproductive. And actually, it hurts the system in which we all live. So how do we start? How do we get the mind shift at the top, at the political level? I, I think the mind shift has to start to be aware of your own framing, mental framing. We have to be aware of the shadows of the stuff we're not questioning. Okay? Okay? The things we don't take into consideration, or in another term, the taboos. We can talk about everything on the planet, but the taboo of reframing the monetary incentive and rewards as itself, at its core, is not on the political agenda at all. Right. So one is shadows. And the second one is immune system. You are a, because it's not just the shadow of uh, at the top, is the entire immune system of the already existing system. Uh, we see this, uh, I've seen this very often in the corporate world. You know, like uh, I worked at digital equipment, IBM went through this, Hewlett Packard went through this, and they never managed to shift, IBM did as an, ex uh, an exception, but Digital Equipment Corporation, that was the second largest corporation in the world uh, after IBM, they mm -hmm. went down the tubes because the immune system within the organization is so big that it attacks every single change. Mm -hmm. So how do we address the immune system? The shadow is, is, um, is a more of uh, at the individual level, at the collective level, Everyone has to be, you know, to buy into the shift because then they, if the CEO starts the change, the immune system, the others who don't understand and don't address their shadows are part of the immune system. Mm -hmm. So from the business world, from the computer, from the high tech world, mm -hmm. I know that the best way to implement such a system is, is do it on the side. Because then you don't have the corporation, the immune system of the corporation against you. You have a startup company that is much more flexible and agile and so on. What, what from your perspective, uh, since you're navigating the high-level financial world, how could this be done on the side? Yeah, it's a, I mean, you're touching here one of the most fundamental questions on how enabling transformation on an individual and on a collective level, right? And enabling it, right? And if you, and you're addressing 
it in, in a very specific way saying, don't touch the given system, start something in parallel. The given I'm system- not saying that. I'm just questioning because obviously yeah. we've been trying no, to do this and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And I, I agree. I agree saying we should not <clears throat> kind of reshape the given system. We should not spend too much energy, time, resources, and money and re-regulating the given financial system. We've been producing since 2008 30,000 pages in regulatory efforts through the Bank of International Settlement. Uh, there's no person on the planet I've met, and if you know someone, please let me get in contact, who knows the 30,000 pages, right? So we're creating a huge body of regulatory efforts. Nobody understands and think, and it's an illusion of control. It's an illusion of of self-efficacy by re-regulating the given system, we're going to make it at some point. No, we're going to step out of the system, honor the system, saying, okay, that's what it is. We've been having huge success. We've been going to the, to the, to the we can go uh, to the moon. We've been creating antibiotics. We've been creating huge stuff, wealth for billions and billions of people. And we're still going to regulate it. We're still going to tax it. We're still going to find um, uh, private-public partnerships in the system. It's all fine, but we have to criticize it. We have to honor it. We have to transcend it and integrate it into a larger picture. And the larger picture with regard to finance is a monetary ecosystem or a dual system that allows us to directly target common goods, because common goods are not part of the private investor's interest by nature. I've been having a discussion the last months on the question like, we have enough money on the market. Yes, we have huge amount of cash over liquidity in the private sector, huge amount, double digit trillions, but they're not feasible to finance clean air, okay? They are feasible to create venture capital, to create technology, or to build up an enterprise. But that even that doesn't work, I'm sorry. I am at the uh, receiving end. The trickle-down system of venture capital doesn't work. It hasn't worked. Fully agree, fully agree. But the point is, I'm saying is, even there is a double-digit trillion private cash over liquidity on the market, which I agree, the data are clear about that. This, if, if, even if you would use that money, this private money to thrive, private bonds, to private investor money, to finance our common future, we would end up in 20, 30 years in a completely privatized world. And nobody would really want that. I'm not arguing against the private sector, but the private sector should do private sector stuff initiatives, what they can do best. Private sector initiatives should not start protecting biodiversity or overcoming hunger and poverty. It's not working. There is no private market to overcome hunger. The public sector is here in charge, basically has to lean in and we have to find very smart, mixed blended financial mechanisms where we honor the conventional traditional system, but extend it in a way that new financial architecture can blend in 
allowing, allowing to finance common goods. I give you one example because we only have another 10 minutes time. We call it a so-called X swap strategy. That's a new financial instrument, right? If you take this extremely valid initiative of climate uh, uh, emergency of the Club of Rome, right? And if you go in the coal industry and fossil energy industry, and um, if let's say the Vatican says, we wanna get out of the brown industry, go into the green industry, and they clean up their balance sheets, the Vatican is fine. But nature is not because they have sold the stuff to someone else with, um, with an inferior management, very likely. So what's required is an instrument we call X-swap, meaning the investor or the public sector needs additional liquidity to say to the guy who's running the coal industry, look, I give you $5 billion to end that story. Okay, you know best how to shut it down. This is the X thing. And we provide you a swap. In Germany, it's called a Wechselanleihe, a swap, where you can use the nominal value of your enterprise into something that makes sense. Because behind your value of your enterprise is an institutional investor, which basically feeds the pension funds of, the of millions and millions of baby boomers. And one of the swaps would be, just I'm just mentioning two, but there's dozens out there, a global cleanup program for the oceans. And another swap would be reforesting the sub-Sahara, right? Okay, so we have all the ingredients out there, but we need the financials intermediaries that allow us to extend our brain and our mind towards another thinking, how to do it. And I tell you, Wechsel Online or swaps are a very powerful instruments known in finance since about half a century, at least. But our mindset is fixed on derivatives, okay? Since 30 years, we're trying to hand over the hot potato to someone else. And this works in a world which is not connected because at the end of the pipe, the guy gonna just get bankrupt with the rest of the risks. In a fully connected world, a derivative is not the main instrument to change the world. It's just not. It's outdated. Instead of derivatives, we need swaps that allows us to swap from a more brown into a more greener future. And such an X swap, for example, is a fractal. It works on a local level and it can be scaled up to a global level with not much technical effort. It's not so, complicated. It's so what, what would have to happen in order for such a, um, a transaction or su such new products uh, to, to occur? Who, is, who are the organizations that we should be going to to encourage them to make such a transformation? Um, well, this is the second step. We need then the big players, right. institutional, institutional investors, sovereign wealth funds, right? And the big private investors with over liquidity. So sovereign wealth funds is $7 trillion, seven to 10 trillions. Institutional investors is 20 to 30 trillion. There's an overlap, but it's not more than 50 people on the planet, okay? We don't have to make too much of a problem out of something which is actually not a problem, okay? Get these 50 people through a Bilderberg meeting, through a Club of Rome meeting, 
through a Davos meeting in one room without any media, right? Get them in one room and say, look, you have billions and trillions of skin in the game, right? We provide you the mechanism, let's have it done. So I don't need a media campaign. I don't need a bottom-up approach. You're asking me what would be my approach. It would be this top-down approach of these two levels, the political level enabling an extended mandate, okay? And then the corporate level with blended private-public partnership initiatives with 30 to 50 people at the most, at the most, and they will shift the market. So you've been working on this for quite some time, ever since I first met you a while ago, you've been, uh, you've had these thoughts on your mind. What is the response thus far? The response is, uh, is interesting for me, psychologically. One is, um that people agree with the technicalities right they say oh my god it's true why one system it's completely stupid why not uh, a more clever system let's put it that way okay and the second question is oh but we don't have the regulatory regulatory frame or we don't have the political framework to enable that so we got to continue as business as usual. And then I'm saying, wait a minute, business as usual is far too expensive. Don't do business as usual. Just don't do it, right? Let's get the political agenda on board. And I think your previous two questions were extremely helpful for me. Who should sit at the table? Who should sit at the table? And Funderlein and Timmersman is not enough because they're not experts in finance. They're super good politicians, and they're very easily overridden by lobby groups who just want to have their partial interests pushed through, okay? And this is then not helpful. We need the financial ministers, IPE, developing banks for Europe, for a European level, and ECB on board. And it's, it's, it's not a mystical. It's not too complicated, really. It's It's... I mean, you can encounter one of the smartest people in Europe anyway, you know? And as you said, they're not stupid. They're not unwilling. They're not insane. They're super smart guys, right? It's nothing to do. I'm not, I'm not goatscaping anybody at all, really. I'm not making any partisan. The point is a mental process. And the, te the technology is out there. It is out there. I can get the links to firms within a week. They can start to mention one figure on a country level, five millions. That's nothing for five millions. A hidden champion in the field in retail finance can allow us a corruption-free parallel system to enable exactly what we've been discussing. And this is, for example, for, for you, it's peanuts. We're not, it's not even worth it to write a, uh, write a proposal, right? This is the level we're seeing, and if we take that into consideration on a more general level, I think we, we are, as I said, the planetary momentum. Um, I think we are in a stage where we are entering, if we take that serious, in an age of a secondary enlightenment, 
or a secondary renaissance, right? Where we honor, or we, in, in Ken Wilber's term, we're, we're entering second tier, right? We're entering second tier, period. And as long as we do not enter second tier, it's not gonna happen. We fall back and regress into populism. We regress into auto autocratic systems. We just cannot face the complexity ahead. I mean, whom I'm speaking to, you are the expert in the field, but you know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about second tier. You understand second form of enlightenment. You understand the idea of second renaissance. This is where we are. And the Club of Rome and World Academy and others are one of these agents who are cutting edge for a second enlightenment, not for falling back into the Middle Ages, for a second form of renaissance with a human-centered approach, which honors what the green man's been doing, what honors what the red man is doing, but transcend it and integrates into a larger whole. That's on a mind level, that is going to happen anyway, unless, unless we, you, and me and others do not lead in and then we fall back and then we regress. And this is also possible. The possibility of transformation is always progressive or regressive. We can transform into an age of nationalistic populists. Yes, that's an option, but it's not my option. It is a possibility, yes, but this is why we have this conversation. We have this conversation because we think there's a transformation possible in a more progressive way, okay, which honors, transcends, and integrates. That's my point. That's a wonderful way to end this conversation. Thank you so much for being on, and uh, we will we will follow up on this. It's, wonderful. Um, Thank you're you very a brilliant much. guy. Thank you so much for your contribution. And We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Subscribe now and allow notifications to see and hear new interviews as they come out. To stay up to date on Professor Brunhuber, visit his website, stefan-brunhuber.de. For more information on Dr. Bosazan, follow her at Mariana Bosazan on Twitter and visit investment-turnaround.com. 